Hey everybody, this month's roundup is brought to you by Arcane Wonders and their new tile laying game, World Wonders, which is already making several top 10 lists of the year for 2023. The Dice Tower, Man versus Meeple, Tantrum House, everybody seems to love this game. And what makes it stand out from all the other polyomino games out there? Well, there's a couple of things. One, I really love the game's focus on infrastructure, specifically roads. Roads do not get enough attention in board games, but they are the core cornerstone of human society. And in this game, you can't just put your polyomino tiles wherever you want. You have to extend a network of roads to be able to build off of them. Plus, the other thing is this has a really interesting push-your-luck element to the tile drafting because uh, you're going to be grabbing tiles as fast as you can to fill up your board and get the right combination of buildings to be able to build wonders. And the wonders are first come, first serve. The tricky thing is, once you build a wonder, all your remaining resources are gone for the end of the round and you have to pass. So you want to get as much done as you can before you build a wonder. But what are the chances that if you wait too long, somebody else will grab the wonder you want? And so those are some very interesting things that make this game stand out. And if you'd like to know more about it, Kimberly has done a run-through on the channel. There's a link for that down in the show notes. But I just want to say thanks to Arcane Wonders for helping keeping Rotto running and bringing you this month's roundup. And with that out of the way, folks, oh my goodness, look how beautiful it is here. We're in the Bay of Conception in uh, Baja, California. Look at that. Look at that crystal clear water. I guarantee you by the time I'm done with this, I am going to be sweating and I am going to probably want to jump right in. Although I got to get to editing this video together first. So folks, it's the end of the month. It's the end of the year. Uh, next thing you know, we're going to be on 2024. And actually a week from now, I'm going to be doing my most anticipated games for 2024. So if you don't want to miss that, be sure to subscribe. But right now, folks, for the month of December with me and Jen on the road, I have got 10 games to tell you about in my traditional countdown format, starting with my least favorite and ending with my new game of the month, as always. So without further ado, folks, let's uh, let me tell you about some games, starting with number 10 on the list, Scholars of the South Tigris. Now. This is going to be kind of blasphemy for some because I think this is making a lot of people's top 10 of the year also. And with good reason. It's a super smart game. Um, you know, the latest from Garp Hill Games. And I think it might be their heaviest, crunchiest game to date. Uh, don't quote me on that, but there is so much going on here. I love the theme, which is all about we are scholars in the uh, ancient Arabic world trying to translate texts from all over. Uh, Sanskrit, Greek, Hebrew. Um, you know, and getting them into the original Arabic. And to do that, we have to employ, uh, you know, world-class translators and um, try to create this kind of almost a daisy chain of, uh, you know, of translators ready to do the job to go from, oh, I don't know, uh, Sanskrit to, to Hebrew, from Hebrew to Greek, and then finally Greek to Arabic. And the thing is, some of these translators I hire, they might work for me when I'm doing the translation. Some might work for you. And it's just a super sharp game. The worker placement is very smart because of the way you combine a card and dice and meeples all together to be able to customize what the card does, how powerful it is, and most importantly, what color it is. And the neat thing is uh, there's different colored dice, but you can combine colored meeples with the dice to change the color of the dice. There's a lot going on here. Um, we've got a run-through on the channel already that I put up the other day, so you can see what it's all about. Really, 
uh, you got to ask yourself, why is this coming in at the bottom of my list? There's one thing. Like the previous South Tigers game, this game has a, uh, a design feature called Influence, where one of the most common rewards you can get for triggering combo chains and whatnot is these little asterisk tokens that you can put on cards to lay claim to them. Now, that means if somebody else wants to take that card, they've got to pay you for it. And, you know, on some level, I think I'm fine with that, certainly at a higher player count, where if there were four people, chances are somebody else wants the same card as me. But in, and, and so I need to protect that card. I need to make it uh, less attractive for other people to grab. It's a good defensive move. But in a two-player game, which is just me and Jen, chances are she doesn't care about my Sanskrit card. She's focusing on some other language. So wasting the influence to protect one of mine that Jen will probably never take anyway is a waste of time. Much better to put the influence on a card I can recognize that she she wants. Because if I can pay attention and I know where she's going and what she's going for, then I'm going to have to pay, she will have to pay a tax to me. And Jen, I found is a two player game. We're just having to deal with that the whole game. Every time we get this reward, because yeah, I know you're not going to want to take my card because it doesn't do you any good. It's literally a waste of time and resources for you to take this card because you can't use it. So I know you're not going to take it. So I don't have to protect the thing I need. I need to attack you by making you pay me to get what you want. And so we get to the point where we just say, could you just tell me what's most important to you so I don't have to spend the next three minutes figuring it out so that I can tax you for it? And we just hate it. We hate it, hate it so much. I hate it in the last um, you know, Wayfarers of the South Tigers. I hate it here. I'm sure I'll hate it in the next South Tigers game. And really, the game is ruined. Because if it weren't for this one little thing, this probably would have been in my top 10 games of the year. Because the the worker place or the worker placement of combining the cards and the dice and the meeples to make super actions is just awesome. And Oh, I wish this wasn't here. Some people say, well, just ignore it, but then you're just throwing the balance of the game out of whack. Some people say, well, just give yourself a coin. You're infusing the economy with way more money than it should be there, and you're supercharging the game, and that's messing with the economy of the game. Oh, um, you know, it breaks my heart, but still a great game. And I think at a higher player count, I could totally see the value of defensive play of those influence tokens. But it's a two-player game. They are all in your face. And so Scholars of the South Tigers comes in at number 10. Then we got number nine, the Starry Night Sky. Now, this is a lightweight, family-friendly, gateway-style game, which is normally the kiss of death for me and Jen. I mean, we can appreciate a good gateway game, but we generally don't want to keep them because we're looking for heavier, crunchy games. But Starry Night Sky really tempts us back because it's really just lovely. Uh, it's uh, all about mapping out constellations in the Starry Night Sky. On your turn, first of all, you are going to uh, get some, you know, draw a blind from the bag, get some more of uh, these lovely little uh, plastic stars. Store them however you want in three different depots and then move on the main board. Move your telescope to another spot. And wherever you move to, you could then pick one of the collections of stars you've been getting, which is why, you know, getting them in the right groups, depending on where you want to go, is really important. You can grab a, a, a group of stars and map out that constellation, and um, you're doing this to score points. Obviously, every star you get on the board scores points. You've got secret goals of particular constellations you want to make sure are mapped by the end of the game, whether you do it or somebody else. But the most important thing is, the more these constellations get mapped, they kind of create a, uh, a, a route, a network, a, uh, that lets you travel around the board much faster. And that's what makes this game fun, is it starts out just making little turns, but by the end of the game, when a lot of the constellation is mapped, you can just zip 
dip halfway across the board back and forth in really sharp, fun, big moves. Another thing that's very, very cool is that if you start um, mapping a constellation, but then I finish it, I get a bonus turn. And you know, by the same token, you know, if I finish something that was started, I, you know, so there are lots of ways that the game will speed up and uh, just really get a really big velocity. Now, it is still very lightweight. It's kind of abstract, but it's sweet and charming. And for anybody who's looking for a family gateway game who is interested in the subject matter, I, I could highly recommend uh, The Starry Night Sky. Then we got number eight, Trolls and Princesses. This is not worker placement. This is a new thing that people are uh, seeing more and more of in the industry. It's worker movement. And what that means is once your workers are on the board, they're never going to come off the board. Instead, on your turn, you're just going to move your workers, these uh, cute little troll meeples, from one location to another and um, then activate that space. And we've seen this. I mean, I've been seeing this. I mean, the first one I can think of really was, uh, oh, man. Was colonization the first one, or was there one even before then? Anyway, I like worker movement, especially when they do interesting stuff. And the interesting stuff this game does is, well, you want to get groups of your meeples, and sometimes your opponent's meeples, and also these other um, you know, neutral third-party meeples to get together. Because um, if you move into a space where there's a lot of meeples, you can earn a lot of what are called action points, AP points, a APs. Now, and that's really cool because every location has a menu of things that you can spend your action points on. And the bigger the group that's there, and if you can manipulate things, you can get really big groups of things there, the more stuff you get to do. And so that's the strength of the game. But for, uh, for me, I should say, Jen didn't mind it. But for me, it was kind of the problem with the game, too, because as the game goes on, you can start getting turns where you've got like eight, ten action points to spend on that little menu. And the turns can get very big very powerful, very crunchy, and a, a AP suddenly means another thing. Not only does it stand for action points, it stands for analysis paralysis. And that is certainly what I found, because um, you know, my wife, she was often, okay, I got to figure out how am I going to spend my six action points this round, my eight action points next round, and my eight action points on the third round from now. I'm trying to figure out you know, um, you know, upwards of 20 actions in the order I'm going to do them in to maximize this. And that is awesome if you're looking for a big, crunchy, not worker placement, but worker movement game. And it, it, oh, by the way, I didn't mention, uh, the theme is, you know, we are tribes of trolls doing all kinds of Scandinavian folklore troll things like kidnapping babies and princesses and destroying stuff in town and just being mischievous and whatnot. Uh, you know, it, it's all very tongue-in-cheek. The uh, presentation is lovely, and the gameplay is wonderfully dense and deep and crunchy, and... If you're playing with folks who can be really decisive and just go with the flow, it can be quick. But remember, that AP can stand for analysis paralysis too, so that's something to bear in mind. And honestly, um, you know, the length of time it took my wife to make some turns is kind of what knocks uh, Trolls and Princesses down to number eight of the month for me. Super design though. Then we go on to number seven, Amygdala. Now, I was really excited for this because it's from one of my favorite design duos, Kramer and Kiesling. I mean, they always come up with really cool designs that are very clean and elegant and fast. I got to say, this is probably one of their most complex designs I've ever seen. More rules than what I normally expect. And also, at the same time, less theme. And I got to say, that makes it not my favorite Kramer and Kiesling. Normally, they're nicely thematic games with simple rules. This one is much more abstract and more complex. Now, that doesn't mean it's bad. Uh, what's going on? Well, I couldn't tell you what's going on in terms of the theme because the developers don't even bother to say who we are or what it is we're trying to do. This is a, an abstract, this is the definition of you know, a theme just pasted onto an abstract game with no thought whatsoever. And that's my number one complaint. That's one of the things that keeps Amygdala down. Where am I at? At number seven 
on my list because I found it very frustrating to um, actually what I ended up doing because I needed to teach this to Jen and I always try to teach games with thematic considerations. I actually read the rules, understood them, thought, okay, this is smooth, but what what are these lotus petals? What is this literal? There's just money. What does money mean in a brain, in the amygdala, which is the emotion center of your brain? So I went on ChatGPT, summed up the rules for the game, and said, could you please tell me what this, re uh, what this particular resource would be called if it were using scientific terms rather than just arbitrary game terms? And they said, oh, well, obviously that's, um, oh, uh, that's a neurotransmitter. I'm like, yes! Why isn't it called a neurotransmitter instead of a resource or something like that? It's a missed, hugely missed opportunity because the theme is really interesting. Now, here's the theme that I've come up with, folks. In this game, each player represents a powerful memory of a person. And um, we are trying to manipulate the emotional center of the brain to make sure we're the memory that gets passed on, that we are what's emblazoned in the brain. I think of that because one of the, one of the few thematic names of things in the game is the memory bank. So, okay, if I've got a memory bank, I guess that means I'm a memory, and I'm just trying... It's, this is an area control game, did I mention, or an area majority game. We're trying to stake out, um, you know, spots on all the different emotion centers of the amygdala, and whoever has the most scores points. It's a... Uh, but, um, so, that's why I figure, okay, I'm a memory. I'm trying to be sure I am not forgotten, and that you're the one that's forgotten, and so I have to make strong emotional connections. Instantly, this game is more interesting. Instantly, it's more engaging when you start thinking about it in storytelling terms like this. And I don't understand why the developers just completely ignored any opportunity and turned it into a pure abstract. Anyway, so anyway, that's the theme according to me. What's the gameplay? It's nice. It's uh, basically a rondelle game. On your turn, you've got the, a rondelle that have all these different depots in a circle around the brain, or the amygdala. And on your turn, you're going to move as far as you want clockwise and um, end up picking up resource, these lotus petals. Um, which, again, I looked it up. I could give you, at one time, I could give you like a really uh, good scientific, technical brain chemistry term for what they are. But nope, they're lotus petals. And um, these are basically the source of resources that you have to store. You use these resources to um, unlock sections of your board that in turn let you lay claim to the to um, land on the main central board. So you harvest resources, you convert them into stuff on your board, and then you spend them on the main board. Um, driven by a rondelle moving clockwise. And if you go too far around the rondelle, you have to pay a tax to keep going. So you want to take small moves, but sometimes you got to take big moves to grab the thing you want. But the other thing about the rondelle is, remember, there's an area control element. There's all these different sections of the amygdala. If I want to lay claim to the anger section, um, well, I got to get over to the to that section of the rondelle. But that means I'm skipping a lot of other sections. I'm skipping stuff I could pick. So there's a really nice tension because it's a rondelle game where each step on the rondelle has two different meanings. It's a multi-use rondelle. What can I harvest, but also where can I deploy? And trying to balance those two things is fun and interesting. Um, but uh, I've, uh, but um, there is one other element of this game. I mentioned the memory banks. That's a restrictor. It tells you how much stuff can you store from round to round, from turn to turn. And you got 10 spaces. And normally, I like, I love a game that forces me to make tough compromises about what I can store and what I've got to make, how I can make room for things. But this game took it so far because your money gets stored there too. And what happens is, say I've got seven coins, a five and two ones. That means that five and that one and that one, which are literally coins, but they should be called neurotransmitters, but whatever. They're just literally coins. Um, they take up three of my 10 spaces in my memory bank, right? Um, and now I want to uh, buy something that costs uh, three, 
uh, things. And so um, now, uh, what did take up three spaces in my memory banks, the five and the one and the one, uh, I've got four and change. That's four ones. Now it takes up four spaces. Almost half of my memory bank is gone, just holding a bunch of coins. And that's an interesting puzzle. It is, you know, um, engaging. But man, it's omnipresent. And honestly, I think both Jen and I found it kind of wore on us a little bit, constantly having to, oh, but wait, I won't have room for this because I've got too much money. Well, you know what? I could sacrifice some points because that'll give me two more bucks. And then I could turn this three into a five. And instead of taking three spaces, it only takes one space. And then I've got room for the other stuff I need to store for next round. It's neat. It's clever. But wow, honestly. I found we spent too much time focusing on the storage puzzle, and I'd much more enjoyed the rondelle puzzle. So um, that plus, really, the, the lack of theme really drug me down, because this was a game whose theme is what pulled me in. And then it was abandoned by the game, which is why, sadly, Amygdala comes in at number seven. But oh, it could be so much more. Anyway, let's move on to number six, Kutnahora, the latest from CGE. I was super excited for this one, too. This is uh, maybe Czech Games Edition's biggest, heaviest game in years, quite frankly. And it's all about, you know, a uh, a silver mine boom in the uh, small uh, European town of, of Kutnahora. And what really makes this game stand out, because there's been a lot of games like this where, hey, invest in the mine so you're generating ore, can use the uh, ore to convert to silver, which is points. But meanwhile, grab land and build buildings for more production uh, engine stuff. And we've seen this in a lot of games. And um, you know, the game does it well. It has a very nice action selection system where you've got a handful of cards. Each card has two actions. You play a card for one of those two actions, and then the other action is gone until next round. So you're having to make tough compromises. I like that. I like the setting, but what I really like is this game pushes the idea of supply and demand more than just about any other, uh, what do you call it, any other uh, Euro I've seen in quite a while. The game comes with these little cardboard computers, I can't think of what else to call them, that um, responds to uh, you know, events like you know, players uh, you know, making the town more prosperous, which means more population comes in, which drives demand up for your goods so you can uh, make more money, which is basically points. But at the same token, if I build buildings that produce these goods, then the market gets flooded with those goods and the demand drops. And you, know, you could be affecting other players, or maybe you're doing stuff that only affects you. And it's really sharp, the way this cardboard computer, these little uh, uh, stands of cards that it's just really smart. Uh, you can watch the run-through that Shay did to see it in action. It's kind of hard to describe, but it's super, it, it, has, it brings so much depth from such simple, elegant mechanisms. I really like it a lot. So why doesn't this come in higher? It should. I'll tell you, folks, there's one thing I'm really missing from this game, and that is some kind of unique player power. Something. Um, because as part of setup, there are, I forget, six guilds in the town. In a two-player game, I'm going to control three guilds, you're going to control three guilds. That gives us a little bit of uniqueness because, hey, if I control the lumber guild, you can't build lumber buildings. Only I can, which means I'm in control of the cost of lumber, which can affect everybody. And that's neat. But what would be more neat is if I played it at a higher player count game where um, there's still only six guilds, but now there's four players, and each player is supposed to have three guilds. So I would end up sharing control of that lumber guild with somebody else. And then somebody else is affecting my backyard. And I think that would be a lot more interesting. It's okay at two, and to be fair, uh, they did a great job of replicating a higher player count game by having this event deck that kind of replicates other players messing with stuff in the economy. I think all that's great, but I do think as designed, it's probably better at a higher player count. And what I really so desperately would have loved to see was, especially because of the two-player um, 
uh, just something. Something that says, hey, well, you know what? As part of setup, I've got this pressure power. I'm really good at this. Or I've got, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's something along those lines. I, we liked it, but I just wouldn't be as excited about coming back to it. Now, here's my hope. CGE tends to put out excellent expansions that really significantly improve the game. Like, look at the uh, expansion that have come out for Lost Ruins of Arnak over the last couple of years. Man, they have really, they've made uh, Lost Ruins of Arnak jump like almost 100 uh, paces on my overall ranking for those expansions. So I expect a healthy, vibrant future for Kutnahora. And I would be willing, I would bet you money, folks, that one of the first things they'll add in the future is special player powers, which would definitely have ranked this up quite a bit for me. But as it is, Kutnahora comes in at number six. Now let's move on to number five, The Explorers of Nevada. Now, this is a sponsored preview for a game that's going to be going on Kickstarter. Oh, uh, when is it? Uh, I think on the 8th of January, if I recall correctly. I've already filmed my run-through. You could be watching that run-through right now if, of course, you were a supporter of the show, either on Patreon, um, where you know folks get to see our videos days, weeks, sometimes even months early, a few even years early. Um, you can also uh, you know support the show here on YouTube as well as a member if you'd like to get early access stuff like my run through a preview that I've already filmed for Explorers of Navoria. But like I said, it's coming soon. In the meantime, what is it? Well, I mentioned earlier in the show about how, you know what, gateway games are often we enjoy them, but then we just don't find they stick with us. And we're like, okay, that was nice, but it's a little too light for us. Navoria is a gateway game that sticks. And that's a rare, beautiful thing. It's really simple. I could teach anybody how to play it. On your turn, all you're going to do is reach into a bag, draw a couple of tokens that said, well, hey, you could either grab a purple card or a green card because you pulled out a purple or a green. And what is that? That would be purple is explorer. I remember it was green trade. I think green was merchant. Maybe green. Yeah, anyway. So, uh, and then I see three cards I could choose from. I pick one. I add it to my tableau. They, these cards, they give me resources for set collection. They give me goals for in-game scoring. They give me goals for mid-game scoring. They also let me do additional set collection by getting in good with different factions of the land. So every card has a bunch of elements on it that I care about. But what I actually get to draft is driven by this blind, um, you know, uh, bag draw. And it is compelling. It is a lot of fun. Every time on my turn, I am um, trying to decide, well, okay, do I just go for one of the guaranteed? Because whatever players don't pick, that one just goes into a public supply. So if I pick the, per if I drew the purple and the green, I can say, I'm doing the purple. The green is out there for anybody to grab. So if you knew you care about green, you don't have to draw a blind. You can get exactly what you want. So that's all great. And that would be enough to make this a compelling game. But what really takes you to the next level is that's only half the game. Once everybody's gotten a certain number of cards, all the tokens that we use to draft those cards instantly transmogrify into workers in a worker placement game. So that purple that I used to draft a purple card at the beginning of the round, now it's sitting there as a purple worker, and in player order, um, players are going to grab these workers that we previously used and deploy them out to the main board to get all kinds of big bonuses. And uh, this, uh, so really, this is two games in one. They're, either one would have been fine on their own, but combining the two so that when I am drafting at the beginning, I'm thinking about, well, I need to make sure that uh, there's enough purples because I'm not going to be first during the draft or the, during the worker placement. So if I put another purple out, then I can be guaranteed that I'll get that purple action that I really need later on. And that elevates it. What else elevates it? 
some of the most lovely art um, you're ever going to see. The uh, designer artist of this, this game was originally released in China a couple of years ago, and now it's getting wider release. Uh, you know, again, the crowdfunding is coming soon. Uh, you know, he is an amazing cartoonist, and fans of Root and artist Kyle Farron, you're going to love the look of this game because uh, it's very reminiscent. I'm sure he probably, I don't know if he took inspiration, but it's a lovely looking game. It's a sharp game, and it's that rarest of things. A gateway game that Jen and I want to keep playing. So that is number uh, five on the list, Explorers of Navoria. Then we got number four, Witchstone, Full Moon. I covered Witchstone a couple of years ago, and uh, I gotta say, it's fantastic. I mean, a, a Reiner Knizia game is always worth playing, but it's rare that Reiner Knizia teams up with other designers, and he did. I'm, I apologize, I do not remember the other designer, but hey, it's right there on screen, right? Now that I'm putting the uh, BGG stats on. So. Um, Reiner, work with more designers because it really makes special stuff. I mean, Reiner, many years ago, made a wonderful domino tiling game called uh, Chin, Q-I-N. I liked it a lot. After I played Witchstone, which is kind of like a, a spiritual sequel to Chin, I'm like, okay, buy Chin because, you know, Witchstone is so much better. But now an expansion has come out that uh, makes it even better still because... Uh, it adds a few different things, like new special types of dominoes you can use that are more powerful than regular ones and, and um, stuff like that. But most importantly, unique player powers, folks. And, oh, it's done so well. As part of setup, you draw two cards and keep one, and those cards uh, increase your ability to do two of the six actions of the game. So I might end up taking the card that makes me better at moving witches and building roads. And you might imagine those combo well together. Um, or I, or the, I may do, I'd be better at manipulating crystals and getting scrolls. And so that means, but on each turn, I could only activate one or the other power. And so I'm always trying to play dominoes to take advantage of my special powers. But sometimes the dominoes don't go my way, and I've got to compromise and do other things. Brilliant. Uh, you know, takes an already phenomenal uh, domino tiling game, takes it way to the next level. Uh, you know, heck, I mean, it was the existence of this game this month that really made me go back when I was playing Kuna Horror. Man, I wish this had some personal player powers. Um, because, you know, and that's why uh, it comes out where it does on the list. I, you know, the game was already fantastic, but I got to say, Witchstone Full Moon really takes it to the next level. And that is why it is what? Number four on the list. Number three evacuation oh baby Vladimir Sui is back Sui is back I love his work and um, this is him doing heavy crunchy stuff it's all about hey we're uh, we're successfully colonized a planet a long time ago but now the planet's gonna blow up oh no so we got to leave we got to evacuate here's the thing folks this is an engine building game in most engine building games you start out with very little and over time you uh, you know get more and more stuff that will eventually let you start running your engine and doing amazing things this game you start with an amazing engine that can produce all kinds of stuff for you. But what you have to do, your engine is doomed, so you have to dismantle it, take it apart piece by piece, load it up on a ship that you have to build by using the engine, and then move it to a new planet and start reconstructing your engine. And that is so cool, so much fun. It creates a really interesting arc for the game where we're powerful and then we get weak and then we get powerful again. I love everything about it. Shay did a phenomenal run through, so you can check that out if you want to know more. But uh, folks, I mean, we're getting into the, my top 10 of the year territory. Um, evacuation did make my top 10 of 2023, and it's my number three of the month. Evacuation. If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. 
If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. Then we got number two, Galileo Project. Oh my goodness. So Shea covered this back in 2022 because it was originally a 2022 game. And um, it was one of Shea's favorite games of the year. And I was so in love with the game from watching Shea's run through. If you go back and watch the final thoughts on Galileo, you'll notice even though I hadn't played the game, I'm there with Shea talking about it because the game looks so amazing to me. And I've been trying to get my hands on it ever since. And eventually, what did I have to do? I had to get in my RV, drive all the way down to Los Angeles, knock on Shea's door and say, give me that. Give me it. I want to play it. And don't worry, Shay, if you're watching this, I promise I will get it back to you. Um, but, oh man, Shay was right. Folks, this is a, for some reason, this game has now been um, recategorized as a 2023 game. I don't know why. It came out in 2022, but Board Game Geek says it's a 2023 game. So I'm here to tell you, it's one of my best games of 2023. And I don't understand why more people aren't talking about it. Um, man, that was a whole bunch of storytelling. I didn't even tell you about the game. It's very simple. It's a card drafting game. On your turn, you're usually going to draft a card that is getting you an employee, which either gets you immediate resources or gets you in-game scoring, depending on how you draft it. Or um, if you got those resources for those employees, you can start building robots on the four moons of Jupiter, I think, or maybe it was Saturn, and um, building up four separate engines. But uh, throughout the game, you're using powers to move the robots from one place to another or upgrade the robots. So you've got like these four different little mini engines that you're trying to manage. And then, of course, there's objectives that everybody's racing to be the first to complete. It's fast. I mean, this is a game that some people might be frustrated by because you might get to the end and say, oh, man, I wish the game would have lasted longer. It was just getting going. But I say leave them wanting more and this game gives you so much gameplay in under an hour it's amazing watch Shay's run through watch me and him talking about it over a year ago about how amazing it is and i can tell you right now folks it is absolutely phenomenal and i'll be very sad to see it go because i got to give it back to Shay as promised anyway though as it is um for this month number three was the uh what's it called the galileo project all righty number two no i'm sorry Oh, that was number two, Galileo Project. Right, right, right. Okay, number one, one more to go. Marrakesh, Camels and Nomads. Oh, baby, you know if I'm playing a new Feld game or an expansion, which is not a common thing for Feld, uh, you know it's going to rank high, but this one ranks so high. Uh, this is a fundamental, I mean, this is not a just, oh, look, let's just, it's the same basic game, but there's a little bit more. This is a radical change to the overall feel and flow of Marrakesh, which is most interesting, I think. I mean, you know, beside the fact that it's got a really cool cube tower, and once you uh, get the upgraded shelf so it works consistently. By the way, if you got the original Marrakesh and you're not happy with how your cube tower works, this expansion comes with an alternate shelf that definitely makes the tower more sticky, which makes the game much better, in my opinion. Anyway, though, that's neither here nor there. Uh, this adds... I think six new modules, and some of them are small. One of them is really important. Unique player powers. Oh, baby, I love them. Anytime they do them. And Feld did them in a really, really smart way. I really liked a lot. But more importantly are the namesakes of this, the Nomads and the Camels. Nomads are a new type of Keshi that you can draft. This is a, you drop cubes, our cubes, they're little cylinders, into a tower. Whatever comes out, players take turns drafting them. There's a new type that comes out that doesn't get stuck in the tower. It's just always available, and they are Nomads, and they are wild. You have to pay to hire them. They're not free, but then they can do any of the 12 actions of the game or is it 11 actions regardless they can do anything um, and once they've done something you could pay them later on and have them change jobs if you need things so they give you a lot more freedom and flexibility i've gotten my highest scores in marrakesh ever with this expansion so the, the nomads are wonderful 
But they're not the main thing. The main thing is the camels. There is now an extra board. It's a camel race. Each player has a camel. Then you, um, the further down the road, the more you have to pay to maintain the camel. Camels are expensive, but the more resources and benefits you can get, especially if you make it, uh, if you win the race by the end. So that's all cool. But here's the important thing: when you're drafting those Keshis in the original Marrakesh, sometimes you're like, boy, I don't really want that Palace Keshi. But I guess I'll take it, and that means I'll try to make something good out of it. Now, with the expansion, if you get a Keshi you don't want, you can say, hey, you know what? You're in luck. You're not going to help me climb the steps of the palace. You're going to watch the camel race. That means they do nothing for me immediately other than move my camel further along to help me win the race. But at the end of every season, I can take those Keshis that I've committed and um, basically spend them on a menu of all kinds of cool new bonus actions that have never existed before. And so... Every Keshi in the game is now a multi-use Keshi. And you know I love my multi-use, so turning Marrakesh into a multi-use primary objective draft or a resource drafting game is brilliant. It means now, unlike regular Marrakesh, where you kind of have to do well at everything, you have to be prepared to really leverage all the different actions. Now you could say, you know what? I am never gonna pick dates. You know what? I am never gonna mess with the uh, with, with, uh, with the entertainment market. I'm just going to ignore that. Anytime I would get one of those, they're just going to help me win the race. Um, and so it gives you so much more flexibility. The game is so much richer and deeper now. I cannot recommend it highly enough. Jen says she will never play Marrakesh without these, and I'm inclined to agree with her, which is why number one on the list is Marrakesh. Camels and Nomads. And phew, folks, can you see how sweating I'm in? Can you see how tempting that crystal clear water is back there? I gotta dive in, but before I do that, as always, at the end of these folks, I like to thank all the people, there they are, right there, who help keep Rotto running, either as a Patreon backers or here on YouTube, or even um, you know, subscribing on Twitch. Thanks to every single one of you, but extra special big thanks to the big uh, backers, uh, Adrian Dong, uh, Aisa Samuelonis, Amber Rail, Amy, April, Blake Wilson, Charles Hill, Cheryl Howard, Chris Arnold, Cobra Misfit, Dan Halligan, Dave Salvatore, Davey Davis, Dem Noir, 2030, Dennis Inti, Dr. Fu, Eric Z, Evitar, Graham Wallace, Hans, Peter Bach, Hans, I hope things are going better for you. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking about you a lot. Uh, Heather Darian, Jay Huber, Jeff Glazen, Jeff Young, Jerry Reese, Jimmy Schroeder, Hanson, KB, Caitlin Albert, Lex, Marilyn, Marlon Cruz, Moltar of the Hill People. You know what I'm talking about, Moltar. Uh, Mom Gamer, Nancy Pope. Nicholas Elkins, uh, Selma and Stacy Lee, Sharon Laubach, The Griff, and Victory BHG. Thank you, every one of you, for help keeping me running. And thanks to all the rest of you. And thanks to everybody who's watching. Okay, folks, we are Dunsville. I got to go edit this thing, and then as a reward, I will go swimming. But in the meantime, you know how YouTube works, right? There's all these things you can click. Uh, subscribe because you don't want to miss my anticipated games for 2024. Uh, there's links for all the games I talked about down in the show notes. So you're just getting started. Welcome to the party, pal. Oh, I am sweaty. Oh, that water beckons. <laughs>